welcome to the Voice of the Oaks, the library podcast where trees talk and you're the leaves. I'm one of your hosts, Benjamin Salen. And I'm Jenna Newcomb. Today, we are sitting down with local comic writer Amy Chase. Amy recently made her professional debut as a collaborator in Archie Comics on the special horror-themed issue, Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horrors. Prior to her work on Archie, Amy also took part in numerous independently published and crowdfunded graphic novels and uh, anthologies. Recently, Amy has also taken up the sport of roller derby, where she skates under the name Tuffy the Vampire Slayer. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This Welcome. is really fun. <laughs> Welcome to the Thousand Oaks Library Podcast. I love it. Um, and unfortunately, one of our co-hosts, Mike, is unable to be with us today. He's feeling a bit under the weather, but uh, hopefully he'll be back next time. Yep, Mike, we wish you well and can't wait to see you back. And you're missing a really fun conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So speaking of a fun conversation, let's get right into this. Uh, Amy, um, I've wanted to ask you this. Uh, how did you first become involved in writing and how do you think that led to being involved with Archie and uh, such a well-established franchise? Oh, man. I'll be honest. A lot of my writing when I was younger was a little bit incidental. I had always tried and failed the NaNoWriMo challenge. Um, I think the closest I ever got was maybe 15,000 words before the Word document mysteriously disappeared from the family computer. Uh, but I really didn't take an interest in literary writing until about high school when things kind of morphed out of the uh, basic grammar school assignments of like, do, do a little short story to prove that you know what that means. But it really came through even more strongly in college because that was when I d determined my English major and I took a bunch of genre fiction courses where the professor offered the choice of either a five to 10 page academic paper based on what you learned or a 10 to 15 page short story. Again, demonstrating the, the tenets you've learned. I did detective fiction, fairy tales, fantasy, and that stuff they couldn't really, they were, they were a little more generous with the grading because they couldn't tell you necessarily your story was wrong. You just had to, you know, kind of do a story. And I loved that. But also in college, to make some money, I worked at a comic book store. And so that was the first time I was really kind of exposed to the idea of writing comics. I had been reading comics since 2012, which is still pretty late in the game, considering most of my peers have, like, you know, grown up reading comics. I was a little, little bit late to that game. But in college, I had to read so many books to be able to accurately recommend them to the customers. And I found that I had a mix of the inspiration of, oh my gosh, I just read a really good book and I want to do something like that. And the ones that I didn't like, and I went, I could probably do that better and I should. I'm curious, just because you said you've worked in a, in a comic book shop and you loved, uh, and you had to give a lot of recommendations. Did you have a, I suppose, favorite or favorite recommendations that you loved to give at the time? Oh man, my favorite favorite at that time was when it was the Jason Aaron and Russell Dodderman Mighty Thor series. It was when Jane Foster first took the hammer and look how that spun out. I know people thought that that was going to go away and then, you know, she got her own Marvel movie there. Um, but that one was really personally important to me. But I also really loved introducing people to the books that weren't Marvel and DC comics. And the kind of best gateway comic for that is Saga from Image Comics. I'm sure a lot of people may or may not have heard of that one. But that's Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples. It's still going to this day. I think they're up in the 60s of issues now. They took a pretty hefty hiatus. But that one, I think at the time we were describing it as like Game of Thrones in space. But that's not even kind of close to what it was. But it was, you know, that dramatic space opera, warring planets and factions. And so that was a really good one that inspired a lot of people to look beyond the Cape comics. Yeah, definitely. It, it I could see where people would say that Game of Thrones thing, but I could also <laughs> see it not being it because it's a lot more, I guess, quirky than yes. Game of Thrones. Yeah, a uh, little bit, little bit adult. Yes, definitely adult. Not not for kids. There there is adult themes there. So. I mean, yeah, that the first page alone, you're like, okay, this is the type of book that we're getting in for. But yeah, that and that period really was formative for me as well with getting to read so many books while I was on my breaks really exposed me to other publishers and then really kind of opened up my mind to going, okay, these aren't just Marvel and DC. And then, of course, as Ben mentioned earlier, Archie, that was one of those things that's like you see the digests at the grocery store and you're like, are they, is it new stuff or is it all the old stuff? And it's 
really interesting the way that Archie has kind of kept modern while maintaining the relevancy of the older classic comics. Um, and I think they've just done a fabulous job with that. I have a very distinct memory of, in terms of them keeping up with modern trends and stuff, I have very distinct memories of the first time I saw the Archie meets the Punisher um, <laughs> cover. And I just, I think my brain stopped. I think I just went, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't even comprehend it, but. Well, and then and... they did they did two editions. They did like a volume one and a volume two of Archie versus the Predator. I, I remember <laughs> when that came out. I think I think after, after the Punisher issue, I was willing to accept it, but even that mm-hmm. was still like, okay. <laughs> I think they've, they've earned the right to do a little bit of crazy stuff. I mean, also when I was working in the comic book store, that was around the time Afterlife with Archie first came out. Okay. And, you know, if anyone on this, if anyone listening here, you know, is a reader of that series, I know I'm waiting for it to come back too. I hope they finish it. But that was such a bold departure from anything that they had done, which I think really also paved the way for the the Riverdale TV show, which oh yes, <laughs> beyond anyone's wildest dreams, yeah. what goes on on that show? Yeah, I was about to say Riverdale is so different in tone from the Archie comics that mm-hmm. people tend to think of. Yes, but I think there's like a staying power in that they've spent so many years establishing the iconic status of the characters who are archetypes themselves. I think in. Uh, any kind of visual format and so once you have that so firmly established you can play with it really well and that is what leads to the horror lines that I you know I got to work on with with the Pops Chocolate Shop. Excellent. So what are some of the differences between writing for comics versus writing traditionally? Oh that's a great question and it you know superficially you look at it and a comic book is so much more picture than words. And as a writer of comic scripts, I will say that about 90% of what I do is not what the reader sees. They obviously see the dialogue. But as a comic book writer, you're writing for the artist. You're also writing for the editor, of course. I've worked with some fabulous editors. But it is a conversation between you and the artist first to make sure that you can collaborate and create a visual story You're also thinking of moment to moment. And so I do write the panel description. So basically, it's almost kind of what I think you would imagine a movie script is like, but it's more segmented because I am writing frame by frame and deciding what are the most important things to show the reader and trusting what they can fill in between the gaps, you know, as your eye moves across the page. And that's part of the artist's responsibility is making sure that the reader can bridge the gap between images in their mind. And so, you know, most of what people are going to see is that dialogue that I've created and that gets put in by the letterer. But it but it's a really weird process because you do have to think of those most important moments. And I'm trying to think of an example with the with the Pops chocolate shop, you know, that opening scene. I'm like we want the outside of the diner and then we're going to move inside and we're going to show that the couple has already eaten. So there's there's stuff on the table. It's kind of finished. They're ending their date. And then we're going to come in with some dialogue that kind of, you know, in media res and jumping between those moments versus the traditional prose. I do a lot of horror short stories. I've had some stuff published in digital literary magazines, including um, Flash Fiction Online, Daily Drunk Magazine, and their sub horror Final Girl Bullet Final Girl Bulletin Board, excuse me. And so that that's a little more self-indulgent for me because I'm not necessarily those I kind of write for me. I'm writing obviously for a reader as well, but I'm kind of writing that for me. I can get as flowery as I want. I can really build up those images, but also in the descriptions and the the not dialogue. Oh my God, I'm a writer, I swear. The not dialogue parts, the, the description, the scene, that is entirely up to me to decide how much you know I give to the reader and hopefully they can build it in their mind. But it's a very different process. Comics is a team sport from head to toe. And so it is a weird process of learning and you have to kind of learn how to collaborate and talk to the artists and the rest of the team because the writer's script is not the most precious thing about a comic book that makes that makes a lot of sense and for some reason where my brain went when you're describing this is storyboarding and it almost sounds like you're verbally describing storyboards writing storyboards before they're drawn sort of thing yeah it it is sort of like that because i always start with like an outline 
usually what I like to do is a one or two sentences per page outline so I can describe what like the basic goal of a page is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, then you do have to break it down into how many panels can I fit? Not all of us are Alan Moore on Watchmen with a nine panel grid. You have to kind of, you know, again, really work with the artist and consider how much of the dialogue is going to cover up artwork. You want to make sure that there's plenty of room for that. But yeah, it is it is kind of like storyboarding in that way, but it's, you know, they pretty up the storyboards and then there's your finished comic book. Yeah, it's definitely really interesting. I know I've I've personally, uh, I enjoy writing. I've written fiction stories. I've written scripts and stuff, but I've never tried writing for a comic. Mm -hmm. And I can see how much more, how it would involve an entirely different challenge to write for each of those little panels. Because you're not just writing like, oh, this page, you know, uh, sometimes for scripts, it'll say, there's an action sequence. There's a chase scene. And then it's up to the filmmakers to, you know, figure out the rest of that. Whereas for a comic, I'd imagine you'd be like, okay, this is exactly how the chase scene goes. So you have to kind of plan it out. And then that communication between you and the artist. And I could just, I could see the challenges. and But how it can come, I mean, graphic novels, comics, they can have such a beautiful result um, from that teamwork. Yes. And there is something about, you know, making sure that the artist enjoys what they're doing because they're you know, th we always joke that there's a couple of things that every artist hates drawing and it's crowd scenes horses cars and, and sometimes bicycles so you want to make sure that you're playing to your artist's strengths but as you mentioned you know with with things like fight sequences or car chases that can come in time as well with if, if you have repeat collaborations there's a lot of of course writer artist duos who do so much together that Trust in that ability to also say like, hey, I want you to lay this out the way that it works best for you. There's an entire visual literacy that sometimes like, I'm like, oh, I didn't even think of it this way, where it's like, oh, depending on who's talking first, if that character is on the left of the panel, that's better for reading versus where the dialogue starts on the right. But I know some writers who have a good enough rapport with the artist to be able to say, you know what, I want to see a fight scene. We need it in five to six panels, but however you feel is good. But then you also make sure to make note of those important props or story beats where you're like, okay, someone's going to get socked in the stomach. Like, I need that to happen, but everything else you can do. But then, you know, you can also have artists who want it very specifically, like I need X, Y, Z steps. So it is a game of give and take, but that's the most important part is most people don't create comics in a vacuum. You are indeed working with other people who, you know, depending on also how crowded the artwork is that makes the letterer's job a little bit difficult to work around the most important visual moments and so everybody's got to be very mindful of one another at each step in the process makes sense of course uh, moving on to our next question so archie obviously as we already discussed with the punisher and the predator has a long <laughs> history of breaking its own genre and doing the unexpected in a in a project like this how did you decide on what sort of influences to bring in obviously uh, you are a big you are a horror writer and mm -hmm. a big fan of horror in general and how did you really decide what influences you were going to bring into this project as you were writing it yes so archie had this really cool thing where they had had like an editorial calendar for the year of hey we're shifting our strategy to do these one shots each month and you know there was a Valentine's Day, Betty Cooper, the final girl story, and then they had Pops, and then they had some other stories. Um, and so going into Pops, the only thing that they had given us was, we want horror stories set in the diner. Tell us what those are. And so when I went in to pitch for that, I knew it was going to be an anthology. I knew there were going to be other people's pieces in that story. But I wanted to create the frame story. Not everyone always pitches a frame story. Some of the anthologies, like their Christmas horror, was just three Christmas stories back to back. But for this one, I was like, okay, what is a sort of almost traditional Americana, sitcom-y type you know, vibe. And I thought of the story or the, the trope of like trying to dine and dash on someone and then being made to do the chores. And so I was like, oh, that's a perfect, like, you know, it's a learning experience, but the learning that they're doing is the horror of what has happened in the diner. So that was what I pitched specifically to them. I said, I want to do two characters who try to skip out on their tab. And as they're forced to clean the diner, they find the aftermath of everything else. And so they were like, that's great. They found two other writers whose stories kind of worked within that. And then I spoke to those writers and said, hey, like, what's something important from your story that I could, you know, have as a set dressing? 
But in that, I wanted to pick, obviously we have Pop, who is the diner owner. He's such an icon. Mm-hmm. And he's almost like an additional parent to the, the kids of Riverdale. I mean, hilariously, we got through the whole anthology, all three of us writers and all the artists. Jughead was not in the issue at all, uh, which doesn't necessarily feel like an oversight. It felt like a challenge to ourselves. Like, we don't have to put Jughead in a book about food horror. But it was those ideas of, like, what other things are we going to see? We're going to see cannibal diners. We're going to see weird late-night clientele. And so I wanted to have Pop kind of be the centerpiece, but I needed teenagers who felt like they would pull that on Pop. And I was like, I don't think it's Archie. I don't think it's Betty. I don't think it's Veronica. And we're and, and it's not going to be Jughead because they have an arrangement. And so I looked through an Archie encyclopedia, which they recently put out, which has hundreds and hundreds of characters. And I was like, I need a bad boy. And it turns out there was a, a kind of, I mean, there have been bad boys like Reggie Mantle and stuff, but there was a, a fairly unused bad boy character named Nick St. Clair, who in his original appearances rolled into town, had like a biker jacket. He was beefing with Archie and Jughead and all their friends. And I was like, perfect. No one's going to miss him if he gets his comeuppance at the end of the book. <laughs> and then I was like, well, you know, I'd been watching a lot of Stranger Things and I was like really into, you know, cheerleaders against evil. I'm a huge fan of Buffy, if my roller derby name wasn't enough of a suggestion. But I had also previously pitched to that final girl story with a cheerleader character named Sherry Time. And so I was like, okay, feels like a cheerleader would be going out with a bad boy and they're going to face some unspeakable horrors. I've got those archetypes. And so it comes back to that again with the deep Archie catalog. You've got so many of those characters you can use like that. And I wanted to make Pop not a villain, but the, the beleaguered small business owner. And so that was the angle I took for him, not just a fun burger slinging diner owner, but like, okay, you know, support your small businesses. This man has had the line crossed one too many times. He's been taken for granted and no more. And so that's kind of how that whole story came together. But it it was really built on archetypes and tropes, but coming from a place of love and respect. And like, I love diners. I love that whole food culture. And so building up those pieces, which Archie has in spades in their library. I could absolutely see a lot of that. And I actually didn't know that the two teenagers you picked were established Archie characters. I'm I'm not the, I've never been the biggest reader of Archie comics. I think admittedly, my deepest dive into them was as a kid reading the Archie Sonic comics. <laughs> But uh, I, at least through osmosis, knew most of the characters well enough. I know Jughead and uh, Archie and Veronica and Betty and a lot of those other characters are. But I was, when I read it, I didn't know these characters. So I was completely clueless that these weren't original characters you had created. (laughs) So I got to say, as I, I actually did grow up reading Archie comics. It was like my family would go to the grocery store as a treat. My dad would get me one of those Archie comics that mm-hmm. sit on the thing. And yes. so that is a core childhood memory for me. So I'm familiar with a lot of the characters. I still didn't know. I'm sorry. My my Archie encyclopedia <laughs> knowledge is, I'd like to say it's, it's decent, but there were a lot of characters in Archie. <laughs> there are. And, you know, if you're ever looking for a laugh, look up Jughead's identical cousin, Souphead. Um, <laughs> I learned about him in the encyclopedia and that kind of just I want to find a, an excuse. If if Archie will listen to any more of my pitches, I want to put Souphead in a book someday. But but that's the thing is that they're constantly changing and evolving. And I specifically picked two characters who came in during the 2010s. I, I think Nick Sinclair was like just a hair before that. But there was a big effort by the artist Dan Parent, who between Dan Parent and Bill Galvin, if you see any of the new Archie comics that are in the retro style, like they're the kind of house masters right now of the kind of classic Archie style. There was this entire book called New Kids Off the Wall, and they introduced a ton of new characters, not just to stuff the cast, but to add some very interesting representation and diversity into the cast. They've been really conscious about different gender identities and sexualities. One of the characters I love recently they introduced is like the tallest girl in Riverdale. And she's like super, you know, all the guys think she's like super cool because she's super tall. And she's like, I just want to play like not Dungeons and Dragons, but the, and it's not the one they play in Riverdale either. It's not the the Griffins and Gargoyles, but like tabletop RPGs. They're set to debut their first trans character this summer in Strange Science in August. And so I think it's really nice that they've been, 
you know, both. And, and the trans character uh, is Danny Malloy, and she has been around in other books, but they're, like, taking the time to evolve these characters and have, you know, just a bunch of different characters coming through. And so New Kids Off the Wall really kind of invigorated the modern lineup. But, of course, you're never getting rid of, like, Midge, Mooths, Ethel, all of the classics. And they're still around and kicking, but there's really room for Riverdale. In, uh, there's really room for everyone in Riverdale. And I think that's really cool what they've been doing with that and kind of just slowly introducing new characters who fit in really nicely. So then when writers come through, not everybody is telling the same story about the same four people. It makes me think a lot of shows like The Simpsons and South Park, where the residents of South Park and Springfield have become almost as much the stars as the original cast that the show started around. Mm -hmm. And also no one ever ages. They're all still in high school or they're, you know, we've got all these these different things. But I love the way that they kind of change and evolve those stories over time. Very, very cool. So who is your favorite character to write for and why? And is there someone you hope you get to write for in the future? Ooh. So this is an interesting one because Archie has been my first foray into intellectual property, you know, owned by a company. A lot of characters that I've written for otherwise in these anthologies are characters that I've otherwise made up. But I really loved writing Pop because I liked that his, again, his evil wasn't evil. It wasn't villainous and mustache twirling. It kind of was, you know, there were a couple jokes in there that I felt were a little bit of that classic, like, silly, campy horror. But I really kind of used him as a mouthpiece of having worked in a comic book store and have having had people skip out on picking up the books that they asked us to reserve, which, you know, we had paid for those as a store and they skipped out on those, just kind of having a little bit of a like, hey, don't forget, like, especially with comic book stores or your local mom and pop shop, like, don't push these people around, like, everybody's just trying to make a living. But it was fun because he got to, like, reference other characters, like, Nick St. Clair is like, I see Jughead walking out of here all the time without paying. And he's like, Jughead and I have a different arrangement. Like, you don't get to bring that up. And like, he mentions the Lodge family as like, the Lodges have to eat, but so do the rats in their wine cellar. And so I got to like name drop a bunch of Riverdale stuff through Pop, which was really fun. But another character that I really loved writing was in an anthology that I did for, it was Avery Hill Publishing, which is a small company in the UK, and Comic Book Slumber Party, which was a small kind of comics collective. And it was, actually, the title has a naughty word in it, so I'll just escape from B-word mountain. Um, and it's a story of a dog who has to kind of reverse dungeon crawl out of a dungeon because she got to the end, and now she's like, we're leaving. And so everybody got to use... Everyone had to use the dog whose name was Greasy. And she was this anthropomorphic, like, leather jacket wearing, cigarette smoking dog with blue hair. And that was a lot of fun because everybody in the book used that same character. But we all used her in very different applications. So I really loved uh, getting to write that one. <laughs> fun. Oh, and then for a character that someday I hope to write, you know, putting the vibes out in the universe. I really want to do a Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic. But specifically, I want to write about Faith. Because I like Ooh. the bad girls and I feel like not enough story has been told about her, but in such that there's a way that there's a huge gap and like I could fill in some stuff. But any chance to stab at any of the Buffy universe would be really fun someday. Yeah, I felt bad for Faith. I feel like she didn't get necessarily the attention that she deserved. Yeah, she had a rough, rough time. But yeah, I like exploring a lot of those spaces. And they've been doing some really cool stuff with Buffy. They even did, there's a Buffy the Last Vampire Slayer, which is kind of like if you've read Old Man Logan or those kinds of stories where it's like the hero's like, I'm retired now, but some young upstart kid is like, but I need you because I'm the next generation of hero. And so someone from Buffy's, so someone new comes in, but she has connections to Buffy's past. And she's like, I think I'm a slayer. I need you to train me. And Buffy's like 50 years old. And she's like, kid, I don't do that anymore. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> that, that would be pretty, pretty awesome. So... We, we've touched on this a little bit, mm -hmm. but I was wondering if you could maybe just give a couple more details on uh, that prior to writing for Archie, you did do a lot of independent work and crowdfunded work. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to ask how much of a difference you felt in terms of writing for an established brand versus doing a lot of the independent projects that you were doing. 
The independent projects are a lot of fun. Organizationally, they're also very different because 90% of them are people going like, hey, let's put something together and put it on Kickstarter and see how it goes. There's a little bit more of the feeling of walking on a tightrope without the safety net because if you know if you don't crowdfund, then you may or may not have already finished the work and it's like, okay, how do we get this out there? But it's a lot of fun because a lot of those books are only tied together by a loose theme. I've done anthologies that the theme was sisterhood. However, that was interpreted by the writers and artists. I did the the fantasy Dungeon Delve one, which was really fun. I've done a Western. I did a unfortunately one project that never went through it was called oh actually I don't remember anymore but I just kept calling it strange romance but it was something about like oddball romances and so for that one my friend Haley Boros who I've had the pleasure of collaborating with three different times for three different anthologies we were like I was really into Downton Abbey at that time but also like thinking of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and so I was like oh like let's do like an afterlife Victorian romance and then one of my favorite ones again which I, I got to work on with Haley was a Canadian publisher called Cloudscape comics they have a rule that at least one person on the creative team has to be from canada thank you Haley, for being our representative canadian it was called fantastic frights and it was a all ages horror book mainly geared towards younger readers and the stories in that book were ordered in the increasing level of horror and i'm honored to say that we were the first one so we were the least scary which hopefully means that if anyone dropped out of the book because they were too scared like they at least read our story but we did a piece that was a stuffed animal and we chose a canadian goose comes to life at night to protect his owner from the dust bunnies and the monsters in the closet and the creepy dolls and stuff like that in her bedroom and so that was a lot of fun that was one that Haley and I got to really talk through together because that we pitched and there was a chance that it wouldn't get picked up. So we were like, what is the idea that we would want to do if we get the thumbs up to do it? So there's a lot of that uncertainty with some of those independent projects, but there's also a lot of freedom because you're only really limited by the theme and the interpretation of the theme. And then there have been a few instances where I didn't necessarily go through an anthology because here's a free tip for all you out there. You could just make comics. You know, you could you could just do it. And I highly encourage it. And if anyone's curious about it, what I tried was starting with a one pager. I wrote a one page script in the middle of the pandemic. I was just feeling like really loss of motivation. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was like, I can turn that into something about a zombie who's kind of just monologue about how they need to pull themselves up together, like pull themselves back together and just keep going. And so I found an artist, her name is Elizabeth Ryan Shepard and she was amazing. Asked her what her page rate is because it's very important to pay your artists if you're going to work independently like that. And I was just like, hey, would you be down to do a one page story? So we were able to do that and just put it online, put it on Twitter for people to see. It was a quick and easy read. And it was a great, again, just kind of exercise of the muscles to do that paneling, do that quick storytelling. So there's, you know, there's a lot of independence and freedom with those indie books, especially the crowdfunding. And I've been very fortunate that a majority of the ones I've been involved with have been successfully funded and published. But, you know, there's a little bit more of the taking matters into your own hands. You control the schedule, but you also control the, or are responsible for the fulfillment and making them happen. But that's where you really get some fun opportunities to network with your peers in that space, meet people, who are coming up at the same level as you. And I think that's important to like make those relationships because it is so collaborative. You don't want to be stepping on people. You really want to be finding people whose work you love and want to follow and want to celebrate as they are also getting those opportunities alongside you. Definitely makes sense. So your issue of Archie is the latest in the long line of Archie titles that twist the expectations of the genre, kind of like what we've been talking about, mm -hmm. specifically taking it into the realm of horror. What attracts you the most to the horror genre? It's fun. It's fun and messy. There are so many different subtypes of horror. And I think even in Archie's recent offerings, it's expertly laid out there. I mean, we had the, the campy diner horror. They had done the final girl. They're doing a summer camp slasher, which again is like one of the kind of staples of the genre. But I honestly wasn't a huge horror fan until fairly recently. I've always had a thing for monster makeup and movie stuff and I think that 
that stuff's really fun. And as I found out through my explorations of this, my grandfather was actually a zombie extra in Return of the Living Dead Part 2. So that was cool because my mom was like, oh, your your grandfather would be so proud. And I'm like, really? Because I think half the stuff would like give give an old man a heart attack. But she's like, no, no, he was a zombie in a movie. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. That feels like horror kind of runs in the family then. But I didn't really start doing a deep dive into horror movies and literature and comics until the pandemic. And there was just a period where I was kind of trapped indoors, as everybody was, I'm sure. And I just kind of thought, whatever's in these movies that I've been so worried about for so long, like can't be any scarier than what is going on outside right now. I've had a couple of other very, you know, near death or, or harrowing life experiences. And so I find a lot of comfort in the genre because it feels almost like fantastical in some ways where I'm like, oh, this could never happen. Some of it, unfortunately, is, you know, based in truth with horror. And I think that's a very like real thing. People put their fears into their work. But most of the time I'm like, oh, Freddy Krueger, like he's a fun guy. Like that's, that's crazy stuff. That's never going to happen. And I really enjoy it. And I've found that I just really enjoy, I, I enjoy the self-aware horror. So like the screams, the cabin in the woods type things. I love analyzing things that I get invested in. So when I got into horror, I was like, okay, now I want to know what horror thinks about horror. So I had a lot of fun with that. But even going back to classics like Halloween, I had the privilege of being on a panel at WonderCon this year with a couple of other women who write horror comics, including Amy Chu, who also has worked on Archie. So that got really weird at the panel when there's Amy Chase and Amy Chu. And then Melody Cooper and Sandy King Carpenter, wife of John Carpenter. And she had like the best casual name drop. And she was like, you know, when my husband did Halloween, and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> she goes, he did it without excessive use of blood. Like there's barely any blood in that movie, if any. And I was like, oh my God, like there, that is one of the most iconic. And, and of course, to some audiences now, it feels a little slow. Uh, but that was such a genre defining film. And I love seeing the different ways that people can elicit that reaction, whether it's total restraint in that way or absolute over-the-top nonsense, like, not nonsense, but like the Fear Street movies based on the R.L. Stein books, I wasn't expecting anything super crazy. I was like, okay, this is probably going to be like a goosebumpsy horror. And then like, it had one of the scariest kills I've seen in years that involved a bread slicer in a grocery store. I'll leave you to finish your own conclusions on that. But I was like, oh my God, like, there's just so many different ways to do horror, and I think that's super, super fun. Yeah, I know uh, Fear Street, when it first came out for the movies, I was very interested in it because I kept hearing good things about it. But I I like horror elements, but I am a complete scaredy cat. So, you know, any of the ones that get the jump scares or get, like, a little too intense, I'm yeah. like, nope, can't do it. <laughs> uh, but I love things like Pop's Chocolate Shop of Horrors. Like, that. that's totally, I enjoy mm -hmm. that kind of vibe and those kind of elements. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious for Fear Street. You So you said it's the scariest moment. I might not be able to... <laughs> to do that one. yeah that one's in the that one's in the first movie it's it's a really well done trilogy yeah that one that was a pretty and i love the like the making of stuff so of course i looked up the how they did those effects and it was just so disgusting i, I would maybe avoid that but like it's it's a pretty solid film trilogy and each one clearly kind of pays homage to the the first fear street film what is it? Is it set in 1994? It's it's in the 90s. And so that one has some Scream-esque stuff. There's a skeleton-faced killer. And so like, you know, there's some of those those 90s grunge vibes. And then the second one takes place in the 70s. And that one is a very like sleepaway camp or Friday the 13th based one. But the last one ties in the 90s storyline, but also goes to 1966. And so there's some of that kind of puritanical, almost like satanic panic type stuff. And they use the same cast throughout. And like, so it's really fun to watch the different storylines and timelines converge. And I think also really notably, horror is a very queer genre. Um, there's a lot of that kind of identity and, and the otherness in it, especially with the killers and with the survivors. And the Fear Street trilogy features a, a young lesbian couple like pretty prominently throughout. And so I thought that was really cool. Just really fun to watch how their dynamic kind of, you know, survives or doesn't with the uh the horror being presented and all of these different time periods and i just think that they did it really well but as you mentioned with like pops and stuff i also think horror comedy comedy is like a really nice way to soften the blow because i think a scream and a laugh are like so close to each other on the human reaction spectrum you know even if you just think of like 
accidentally bumping into someone and you get spooked at first, but then you kind of just laugh it off. Like, oh, haha, it's just you. Like the how, how close the fear and the, the laughs are, I think that's a great way to kind of couch some of the horror and like introduce people to it. I love throwing little jokes in here or there. <laughs> One of the first things I did when I got on the email thread with the other writers from Pops was called dibs on a joke. I was like, I don't know if you guys all also thought about this, but I wanted a reference to like the the cannibal horror because I needed a segue into the story that was Soylent Teen written by Jordan Morris with art by Liana Congas. And so I was like, okay, I need like a food pun. And there's so many characters in Riverdale and they've all got weird names. Like someone's name is Pencil Neck G. And so I was like, you know, going through the in, the encyclopedia and there's a very prominent character from the 70s whose name is Chuck Clayton. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make a joke about fresh ground Chuck and I need to call dibs on it in this thread. And I was like, nobody can take this. This is mine. Because I just wanted one of those little you know, campy little stingers as we flip into someone else's story, you know, and then people will laugh like, oh, ha ha, it's a pun. And then go, oh, God, he's co he's <laughs> cooking and eating people like that's pretty scary. But I think it it helps bridge that gap for those kinds of things. Yeah, I feel like horror. I mean, comedy can definitely make horror feel more accessible and easier to just kind of enjoy the horror without feeling maybe a little too scared because you're you're enjoying the comedy as well so you can appreciate it yeah yeah i can definitely say some of my early points into the horror genre i saw a scary movie before i saw scream <laughs> excellent and movies like Shaun of the dead and zombie land as well were by that point i personally am a huge horror fan and i was very deep in the genre unfortunately for jenna for our october book for our many voices book club i did recommend a book that ended up being very intense oh, no. um uh, if anyone is looking for a really good scary read this october i would recommend the only good indians is a very very intensely scary book yeah, that one was a little too much for me. There was a lot of animal kind of horror and some gore and stuff. And I, I don't know, it got a little much for me. It was very well written. I can I'm very sorry again for that. <laughs> That's, That's okay. the thing is when they're so well written and you're like, I, you know, I'm very proud of you, but also I'm terrified right now. If you're looking for horror comedy literature, though, Grady Hendrix is kind of one of the like modern maestros of that. He actually had a movie made of one of his books he did my best friend's exorcism and the the movie wasn't you know my top favorite thing but it felt like a really good like oh my god if a teenage girl was like i'm gonna watch this movie and there's definitely some like weird creepy horror stuff in it but like it has some of those comedy elements it has one of my favorite actors from glow rest in peace on netflix that but there's like you know there's like a televangelist trio of of dudes who are like preaching the like don't do drugs at your school kind of thing but like one of them is like, I do exorcisms on the side. Like, so it, it was really funny, but he's done, Grady Hendrix has done Horror Store, which was like an Ikea haunted house thing where all the employees are on the showroom floor overnight, like investigating hauntings. And he's done the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. Like he's done a bunch of ones that's like, the title is just absolutely bonkers, but the story inside is also pretty pretty funny and accessible. A couple of these I've, I've heard of. I've, I've heard the uh, Southern uh, Book Club's uh, yeah. Guide to Slaying, Slaying Vampires. That one has come across my radar in the past. I haven't read it yet. I just want to ask, have you ever, have you ever uh, ha by any chance had a chance to read any of the works by Max Brooks? No, I have not. Okay, so he's the he's the author of the Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z. Oh, um, okay. He's actually the son of Mel Brooks, and really, uh, yeah, and he brings a lot of the Zombie Survival Guide was actually written as a parody of Doomsday Prepper books. So <laughs> it's kind of like let's write a completely serious guide to how to survive the zombie apocalypse as if it's actually going to happen. Nice. And he meant it completely as comedy and parody, but he did it so well people thought it people took it seriously. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Well, I hope it gave them some valuable information. Everything I everything I know about the zombie apocalypse, I'm hoping it's a Left 4 Dead style because I've played copious hours of that video game. But uh, yeah, that's the thing, especially with zombies. I've never I've never been inspired to write a zombie story. I think because there's so many of them, but like there are so many different types of zombies. So it's like if we get one of those apocalypses, I hope it's not like I hope it's not the train to Busan zombies. Like I don't want oh, those. Yeah. No, that was. I'd rather have some like Shaun of the Dead style zombies. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
I stand by my, I believe that in terms of horror movies, one of the single scariest movies to me still remains the original Night of the Living Dead from the 60s. Wow. That movie, there's just something about the overall atmosphere. Like, I can watch modern movies with tons of gore and all the special effects, and I just don't get the same dread that I get from that classic movie from that classic movie there's something mm-hmm. about and it's like what we talk about it's like there's so little actually shown in it and there's so much that is just atmosphere mm-hmm. that really just makes that movie still terrifying to watch and that's one of those things that i think is also like if you can do it well in comics it's incredible is forcing the reader to imagine what is going to be scary or what is happening between the panels because the art really does control like the visual pacing because someone can can rush through a page especially like when there's not as much dialogue some readers do just jump between the bubbles and the art is kind of like a background yeah piece but one of my favorite and one of the scariest comics i think i've ever read and i just learned that this was the writer's first comic book he's he's written other novels it was written by daniel kraus with art by chris sheehan it's called the autumnal from vault comics it's an eight issue limited series and it's about a woman who has been kind of estranged from her mother but her mother has passed away and so she returns to the town where she grew up that has the most beautiful autumns in all of the united states the leaves are beautiful bright orange but everybody is deathly afraid of the trees and like there's this kind of almost like a folk horror figure lurking in the woods. And so it's about this this young woman who is a single mother to her child who has uh, certain behavioral needs as well. And she's dealing with her past coming back and the, the looming presence of this figure in the woods. And they have this amazing page turn later in the series. And I won't spoil too much about it, but it's her going through a photo album and she discovers a photograph that has a corner flipped up. And she goes to unfold the corner, but the 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 moment in between her unfolding the corner happens on the page turn, and so you're sitting there at the end of that one page waiting for her to, you know, flip the corner down, and you know that when you turn the page, you're gonna see whatever was just hidden, and you kind of don't want to do it. And it, I was reading that in the dark of night, and I was like, I don't want to turn the page, but the issue's over in like two pages, so I just gotta finish it. But it was so masterfully done that I think about that, and it's one of those like. Man, I wish I could do that. (laughs) (laughs) I've been looking forward to this whole interview for this question. So as we talked about, you you are a comic writer, but you are also a roller derby player. Yes. And I want to know if you could comprise a fantasy roller derby team of comic (laughs) book characters, who would be on it? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, I want to say there's actually a surprising number of comic book writers in roller derby as well. Um, I want to give a shout out to Shay Fontana, who skated under the name Shay Q off, because when I was starting to join the sport, I had a lot of questions and I was really afraid. And she, I was able to get in contact with her and she was very gracious about answering questions about all my, my little fears. But oh my goodness. Okay, so there are some comic book characters who have experience in roller derby. So I'm going to give you a five-person team because that's that's what's called a pack or, or your your starting lineup, and that's one jammer and four blockers. So the jammer is the one who's scoring the points. She's got the star on her helmet, and I would, based on her experience in both the comics and the films, I would make Harley Quinn the jammer for sure. She's fast, probably good at juking, but she is surprisingly strong, so she would be the one I'm relying on for getting points. And then my first blocker, I would make She-Hulk because she's big and tall, we have a skater on our team who's over six feet tall and like absolute powerhouse. She can just blast through the enemy defenses. Um, so I would make She-Hulk the pivot, who's the one who's got the stripe. The jammer can give the pivot the star if she's in a bind. So we'll see. I've got Har- Harley Quinn, She-Hulk combo there. And then actually someone from Archie has done roller derby. Cheryl Blossom, who's like the rich girl above Veronica. She In the Betty and Veronica Vixen series where the girls start a biker gang, they find out that Cheryl does roller derby under the name Cherry Bomb. So I would definitely put her on there as kind of like a surprise. Like everyone thinks that she might be too afraid to break a nail, but she's not afraid to get down and dirty. Then I would want Alana from Saga. She's the mother uh, in that book. She is a former soldier and she has just been through hell and back. She loves her kids, but she did some time in one of the arcs on like a rec- like a wrestling circuit. So I think she's got some like hidden hidden strengths in there. And then for the last blocker, I think I'm going to go ha- have to go back to Marvel 
and she doesn't have any experience in it, but superpowers are not America Chavez. I think she is a little bit of a spitfire. I really, really like that character, and I think she probably shoulder checks really hard. Um, but she can also, like, open portals as her superpower. So if we we're allowed to use powers <laughs> on the team and that's not against the rules, she would definitely be great at helping the jammer get through portals and maybe get around the enemy team. So that would be my starting lineup. I would be the bench coach, and I would hope we would win lots of points. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it definitely sounds like a fantastic team. And I didn't know that Cheryl did roller derby. Yeah, that was a pretty recent book. I want to say that came out in like 2017 or 2018, which it's not as recent as I'd like to believe it is. About five or six <laughs> years ago. Feel, this feels like a fever dream. It feels like I'm making this up. But I guess uh, maybe it's almost like a thing of making the rich girl do roller derby. Because <laughs> I think I remember in one of the incarnations of Scooby-Doo, Daphne Blake does roller derby. Really? Really? I think in one of the incarnations she does. I'll have to I'll have to double check this and maybe send a link just to show I'm not crazy. But I have I have a memory of of it happening at least once please send it to me if you do find that because that's amazing and i would pay i would pay a million dollars to have a time machine to take me back to sarah michelle geller filming the scooby-doo movie in the early 2000s and have that be part of it um that movie also just turned 21 this week which i'm old (laughs) um but yeah i don't know I, i think it's because it's it's such a rough and tumble sport But there are so many different types of people in it. I mean, I'm on the fairly younger end of our team. A lot of the team is um, mothers with kids who just kind of need to get away for the evening. We've got ladies in their 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, and they're absolute badasses, if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. But like, yeah, I I, I can see it as a very fun character type subversion because it is such a a physical sport. But everybody kind of gets to like make their own persona as well. Like I'm toughy on the track, but... By day, I'm mild-mannered Amy Chase, the comic book writer. And then out there, I'm toughy and I paint my face and I'm knocking people over on a good day. So it's a lot of fun. But yeah, that's another one. The Betty and Veronica Vixen series is fun because it is all of those nice girls of Riverdale kind of just subverting that expectation. And that was written by Jamie Rotante, who is the editor that I worked with for Pops. She's amazing. Love Jamie. And then there was art by Ava Cabrera on that one. That's very fun. It's it's one of those things where having read kind of all the more classic ones, it's nice to hear the characters get to, you know, evolve and grow and change and find new aspects of themselves. Yeah. And, you know, Betty Cooper is a smart, smart girl, but she's always, you know, she's the one who would like fix Archie's jalopy. And so she's doing the bike tune-ups. And like, so it's all of those parts of the characters that are there and they exist and you're staying true to the person but you're getting to put them in new situations, which is, again, what it came down to with these these horror books that I've gotten to work on with Archie. So as with all of our episodes, we're, we're at, the, at the end, unfortunately, but we're going to ask for a recommendation. This can be a something, this can be a book, this can be a movie, this could be a location. Honestly, anything that you want to recommend to the Thousand Oaks community. Well, I definitely want to start with recommending your local library or your local comic book store for any of any of the books that we've mentioned today. I think this was a very, very book heavy uh, session, but especially like libraries and letting them know what comic books you want, like that order process and like having those books. It's great to expose yourself to new titles, but it is so key for like the publishers as well to know like who's ordering what and where they want to get that. But I'm going to go totally against type. We've talked about a lot of horror stuff, and I love so much of that. If you want another book that will make you confront your mortality in a more emotional way, one of the best comic books I've read of the last five years was called The Many Deaths of Layla Starr. It's from Boom Studios. It was written by Rom V, and the artist is Felipe Andrada. And it is a a fantasy story set in Mumbai, which I think is a, a setting that doesn't get used a lot, especially with just beautiful, fantastical storytelling. And it is about the Indian avatar of death being kicked out of her job in the heavens because on earth a baby boy has been born and his destiny is to solve the equation of of death and basically grant everybody eternal life. So she gets kicked out. She ends up in the body of a girl who has just died named Layla Starr and she sets out on a mission to try to kill that child so she can stay in business. And it is this beautiful exploration of life and death 
and just cycles. And it again, it, it just very existential time these last few years, but it is so dreamy and it's so much fun. And it was a pantheon that I'm not usually aware of. I, I you know, a lot of Greek mythology and, and stuff like that. But the the backdrop of Mumbai and having that beautiful fantasy setting, that is the many deaths of Layla Starr. One of my favorite comic book reading experiences, just I think of all time. I'm going to definitely have to check this one out. Uh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. I, I haven't heard of it before. So thank you for the recommendation. Yeah, I hope uh, you enjoy it. Before we wrap, I would like to just let our listening audience know if you are interested in any of the graphic novels talked about today, many of them are available at the library. And for those interested in getting into writing, whether it be for comics or short stories or even publishing, we have a number of resources here that you can look into, including our collection on writing and publishing and our local author page on our website, which will lead you to numerous resources, including classes you can take on on LinkedIn Learning and Skillshare on how to become an, a writer or how to have your work published. Thank you, Ben. And that's unfortunately all the time we have for today. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, listeners, if you have any thoughts or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on our webpage at www.tolibrary.org slash services slash voice dash of dash the dash oaks. And you can reach us at podcast at tolibrary.org. Before we completely wrap up, some things we have happening this month. First, we're in the middle of Summer Reading Club. All ages are invited to sign up, log your reading hours, and win prizes for doing so. Summer Reading Claps Club lasts all the way through August 12th, so you still have plenty of time to sign up. You can learn more at www.tolibrary.org src. Second, TO LibCon is coming up on July 22nd through 23rd. TO LibCon is a free pop culture convention that focuses on highlighting comics, anime, games, fandom, and all things geeky. And it will be taking place at the Grant R. Brimhall Thousand Oaks Library. There will be a cosplay contest, contest, an artist alley, a Friends of the Library book sale focused entirely on geeky books, so you can get some, some uh, comics and stuff. Plenty of programs around gaming and art. And on that Saturday, we'll be having an author talk and signing with the author and artist Jen Wang, the creator of Prince and the Dressmaker and Stargazing. Visit www.tolibrary.org lipcon to learn more and register to keep up with the latest Libcon news. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on your favorite page of the book to your left. Thank you.